You're now listening to Let's Talk Trees, a podcast brought to you by Craft with me, Anggi Cahyanintias. Indigenous communities around the world have been living in harmony with nature for millennia. They take care of their territory with so much wisdom, and studies have shown that the environmental decline is happening in a slower rate on their land. This has put the spotlight to their role, and we can definitely learn from them. A report from the IPBES, or the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, also calls for scientists and policymakers to support and partner with indigenous communities to halt biodiversity loss and land degradation. And to discuss about this, I have here with me two lovely ladies who will share their experience and perspective. The first one is Tania Eulalia Martinez-Cruz, joining us from Oaxaca, Mexico. Hello, Tania. Thanks for being here with us. Hello, everyone. Thanks for the invitation. I'm an indigenous person from the Ayuk group, or Mije in Spanish, from a Tamazulapan del Espíritu Santo in Oaxaca, Mexico. And I also define myself as a scientist, trained as an engineer, but then moved to social science. And I mix my personal experience as an indigenous person, but also my scientific background to advocate for the role of traditional knowledge to tackle global problems. Thank you. Uh, our next guest is Ruka Sombolingi, Secretary General of the Indigenous Peoples Alliance of the Archipelago, or AMAN. Um, she's a fellow Indonesian, she's like me, joining us from Bogor, Indonesia. Hi, greetings from AMAN, Manasu Moraka. My name is Ruka and I belong to Toraja people in the central uh, Sulawesi island. AMAN is indigenous uh, organizations from Indonesia and our members are indigenous communities. Currently, we have 2,371 uh, community members or around 20 million people. Thank you. Thank you. So now that we get to know each other a little bit better, let's start. We have heard wonderful stories about indigenous people's ability to live in harmony with nature. Can you share the experience from your community? I'll go first to Tania. Sure. So I would like to start with a story that touches in many indigenous communities, I think in Mexico and in Latin America. So we are told, or my grandmother told me that when we are born, or, or umbilical cord has to be buried in the backyard of our houses, because that's the place where we belong, that's your home, and that's the place where you have to come back one day when you die. So this has like a strong meaning because it means that you belong there and it's your duty also to take care of that place, your, your hometown. In my case, those are my mountains, how, how I call them. And how do we live with harmony or in, in harmony with the environment? I want to give you just like a, an example. So there's one Zapotecan community back in my region in the mountains. And the main sacred figure in the cosmovision is water. But if they want to preserve water, they also need to take care of the forest. So for many years, they've been opposing for other people to cut the trees or manage the forest. They replace the trees that are sick, but they know because of the way of understanding the world that they need to take care of the forest if they want to have water and water being a central element of their life. So why is this relevant? Because all of all this is enclosed in a territory and that links back to the story of your umbilical cord being buried in, the, in your backyard because that's, yeah, that's your home. You have to take care of it. 
Uh, and this becomes really important just with all the issues that we face with land grabbing these days for indigenous peoples defending the territory and everything that it's encompassed in that territory becomes crucial because it's life, it's identity, it's resilience, it's culture, it's defending life. Thank you, Tania. I will now go to Ruka to share the story from Indonesia because Indonesia has more than a thousand indigenous communities, as you say. Can you share some of their stories? Thank you, Angi. I think uh, indigenous peoples, when we talk about cosmovisions, cosmovisions of indigenous peoples across the globe, I think it's so much related to their environment, their living space where they are. It is so much uh, related to living in harmony, taking care of each other among human beings, with animals, with plants, and even with soil, water, and uh, air uh, around us, because that's just part of our being as indigenous peoples. I come from indigenous peoples, uh, the Toraja, where we have a very basic value is, we call it Talulolona. Talulolona means three siblings. The first one is, we call it Lolotau, or human. And the second one is Lolopatuan, or the animals. And then the third uh, is Lolotananan, or plants. So we are sisters and brothers. We are not like higher in hierarchy with them. For me, it's the very beautiful uh, value that allow us to think that we should treat the human being, the animals, the plants fairly. And therefore, in all of our life, including in our rituals, they all involve animals and plants. It is also very important to take care of the, the soil. That's why there are a body of water where you cannot, uh, where you cannot even pee. But there are certain parts uh, on the river that you cannot go to fish every time of the year. Uh, there are certain places where we put a sign. Uh, it means that it is not for a time for that place, particular place. And that's actually uh, to allow the fish or the eel on that place to have uh, babies. Thank you. This is interesting. When we talk about indigenous communities or indigenous cultures, there are a lot of taboos that sometimes unexplainable. Sometimes you just told that you cannot do that. It's Pamali in Bahasa Indonesia or or it's taboo to do that. But I want to ask to Tania, because you're studying this um, incredible groups of indigenous communities, can it be explained by science? Yeah, it, it can be explained. And that's sort of what I try to do with my work. Um, if you go to some anthropologists, they would actually refer to or use different ontologies just to show you how there are different perceptions of the world. Um, because I think one of the, I don't want to say failures of science, but it's like many times we, 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 we measure, we conceive the world just in a way but we have missed or many times failed to also take other ways of perceiving the world. For example, I, I want to tell you the sacredness of maize in the culture of Mexico, with many policies trying to promote other types of maize. Indigenous communities have preserved their native maize 
when many scientists or policies have promoted um, a different or improved maize variety. And one of the reasons is because of this attachment with religion and culture and people has come and used all these arguments to say, it sounds in a way for some people simple, but also if you think of the complexity, it's also in a way to maintain resilience because farmers don't have to buy seeds every single year because they seeds are already adapted to the context, but also because that's the basic or staple food, but also because it's part of many rituals. So I think it can be explained. And I think we are moving more towards opening ourselves as scientists and being able to accept that there are other rationales beyond this way of measuring value with money when there are many other things that you cannot necessarily quantify, but quality of life, the, the, the love that you put into, into your environment. There are many people that is already doing that or trying to move into that direction. Thank you, Tania. I see Ruka want to add to that. Uh, in my in my uh, opinion, and this is also what always uh, we always thought: don't do this, don't do this. And then why why we shouldn't do that? Say just don't do that. But if we try to uh, just make rational out of the out of it, it's it's very clear. For example, don't plant in the evening. Why we shouldn't plant in the evening? Because you might end up injure yourself or injure the things that you plant. Why it is a very clear that you should take care of them instead of making the uh, instead of injured them in my traditions we have a special place to put the we call it the mother and why we put it there because it is it is just enough room for the next uh, year seeds we don't have to uh, as tanya mentioned earlier we don't have to buy seeds why you are you you have the sign that it's pamali it's uh, for, uh, forbidden to fish in that certain area because that's sanctuary of, uh, that's the nursery of the fish and eel on the river. We all have, we call it kurungan in our, uh, in the middle of our rice, uh, rice field. It's like a small pond that we, it's deep, put bamboo around and sometimes the plants, they, the water plants around it. It's the sanctuary of the fish and it is also the place when we start the planting season of the rice, then that's where we get the the fish for the people who work on that uh, rice field. So you don't have to buy from the from the market. So that's you know I think it's it's all about uh, uh, food. It's all about also resiliency. It's about the conservations. That's why for me I always consider that all indigenous territory, every single piece of indigenous territories are conser- conservation area. I have to agree with that. Thank you, Ruka. It's interesting because it's almost funny the way that we, you know, we go with the so-called modern way of life, but then people are starting to realize that I maybe we do this wrong and then start to look back at our ancestors and the local way or indigenous way of life and then do what it's do what we did yeah. like centuries ago. We, we are just repeating the, the uh, I think it's when we look into the civilizations, the humankind civilizations um, timelines. Yeah, for, for example, ferments uh, is very ancient indigenous technology. Making wines, uh, probiotics, all this technology now who try to extract uh, probiotics and sell it very expensive on the market, all rooted in a very, very ancient uh, food technology. 
food productions. It's it's yes. it's, it's so, so very clear that uh, our ancestors they just they don't have researchers back then, and they, they don't they, some of the of them even they don't know, they don't have a script like my in my culture we don't have script, but they put it in the symbols you know in the in the cave uh, in the house uh, ornaments in the rice barns. It's you know throughout the village. So those are the uh, that's why I say our knowledge now our science now it still needs to be more sophisticated to be able uh, to understand those uh, symbols. But I don't really, I'm not the person who will contrast the modern science and indigenous science because I think they are just two sets of knowledge and skills that just uh, live in different era. Mm -hmm. Um, I need to go to Tania because Tania wants to say something about that. I totally agree with a Ruka um, when she says that like indigenous knowledge can be also considered in a way a whole set of knowledge and science. But I think just the way or why the modern or Western science became dominant, it comes from the colonial times because they have imposed a system and this system has been undermining also this traditional knowledge. I see now more opening now for this knowledge to come up uh, because we've seen that this modern knowledge hasn't been sufficient itself to solve all the problems and many of these indigenous peoples have survived and have been resilient and they've used all their knowledge and I think one of the reasons why modern science didn't like really accept that knowledge for many years is also based on all these methods that we have defined on how science should be seen or what actually science is, right? Uh, but I think there's a lot that can be a added or learned from indigenous communities that it doesn't work in the same way that does the Western science doesn't mean it's not valuable. And like Ruka also had mentioned before, I think we are looking back when we are thinking in medi medicines or a, now with the pandemics, how you could reinforce your immune system and things like that, you see that people has all that knowledge, maybe not necessarily to attack or prevent COVID directly. But if one of the reasons is like you have to, or one of the ways you can fight it, it's to have a strong immune system. Like there's a lot of knowledge in the communities on how you could face several diseases or the weaknesses you have in your body, for example agree to that. As you say, Tadia, the knowledge of the indigenous communities is started to get the spotlight and traction because uh, of the international exposures that it gets. Um, but I want to know what are the challenges that they face and how to make their voices heard louder? Uh, maybe I'll go first to uh, Tania. So I think, to me, I think two of the main challenges are, and I think Ruka agrees with me because we both mentioned territories, is all the land grabbing that it's happening in the world. Um, because they, like, just if we look at the statistics, for example, we say that they preserve more or less the 80% of all the biodiversity. And to preserve that, they use less than, the, than a quarter of all the land that it's on the earth right so imagine how amazing is that in such a small piece of land they are capable of managing that but also when we see at the figures on how many forests we are losing every year 
then you are also seeing that this land on indigenous territories is getting lost. And we, if we lose that, we are also losing this biodiversity. Um, so I think that's one of the main challenges. We need to protect their territories or help them to protect their territories, which they defend. And we've seen they, they like this relation, human nature, it's like unequal, right? There's no jerkies like you both have pointed out before. So I think that's one of the tasks we have to do. So there's a role of a policy that should allow to not give a permit to companies or private industry to go and grab these territories without consulting indigenous peoples first. And in these consultations have to be more transparent and people should be well informed and aware of what's happening if they really want many of these projects to be implemented. The other one, I think, it's we need to um, give them more like a voice and a spaces. Many of these policies, we, we've done a lot of progress, but I still believe that many of these voices are not heard yet. And one of the main limitations, for example, when I work, I, I've been working with many international NGOs, it's, for example, the language. Many times you require those people to speak English and like they are already speaking a native language and then they have probably learned an official language of their country. And then you're asking them to move one step upper and learn a third language. I think that's one of the other limitations. So we need to also find a way on how to engage them more actively. Finding these grassroots movements, there are many. It's many times challenging because many of them are acting more at a local scale and not necessarily engaging with these upper level NGOs. But I think rather than then trying to look at us, if we truly want to advocate for them, we need to find better mechanisms to reach out to them. I hope we can find that better mechanism soon. Uh, Ruka? I think I won't repeat what Tanya mentioned about uh, the challenge, the land grabbing, but I would bring us uh, actually to the current uh, ongoing pandemic uh, that we are uh, facing now. I do believe, and in Aman, we do believe that uh, this COVID, uh, this virus is actually uh, the friend of the Mother Earth and the friend of humanity. This uh, crisis now that we are facing is actually providing us answers that uh, we indigenous peoples, we are on the right uh, path uh, for what we have been fighting for in the past. And this is why I'm arguing this, because this is all the uh, information, the data that we gather since uh, the mid-March. In 15 March, we announced that uh, we are in in lockdown we are in the emergency situations all the community are uh, instructed to uh, lockdown and uh, do all the uh, preventing measures uh, we realize that we are in the very uh, critical situations when it comes to this pandemic most of us uh, live uh, in the remote area where we don't have uh, good infrastructures, uh, transportations, uh, and all this uh, healthcare system. So we, we realized back then, if this virus that is coming from outside, coming from the city, reach us, we will be, we will be in the very, very bad uh, situations. The, the thing that we need to ensure is to isolate 
this virus out of indigenous territories. While when we manage, when we are very disciplined and we isolate that virus, the, all the activities within the community can remain normal. Because indigenous peoples, we don't have the concept of staying at home, except for some a period of time. For example, when we, we say during the planting season, when when the uh, we call it the the earth is pregnant, which is actually the plants or the rice are started to produce the grain. You're not supposed to go on the field and dis, uh, destruct the process of the rice of uh, making your food. In the early beginning, we say we are going to have food crisis because people have to stop working and also all these transportations are being on, put on hold. And so many people are so much depending on the food that we buy from the, from, from the market. So we need to make sure how much food do we have and uh, start to plant, especially the short-term uh, crops. So during that time, from the early beginning, all the summons of the elderly people, the women in the community, they produce the herbal medicines to boost the immune system and then distribute it around. Very clear information that we get from our work since March is, first, the closer you are to the corporates, the big corporates, the big company like mining, uh, mining uh, oil pump plantations, the, the more mm-hmm. critical your situations. Uh, just from from the food status is our indigenous community who have lost their land. They all don't have enough food to survive even on a daily basis. And then it's very clear that indigenous peoples who still uh, live in their territory and produce their food from their territory and they're still following the way of ancestors of decision-making processes, uh, participation in the, uh, in the community, taking care of their nature, they are the ones who prove to be a very resilient in this time of crisis. In the beginning, we say we will have crisis, make sure we have at least three to six months of food stocks uh, and plant new plants. And now over three months already, this food status of indigenous community, this kind of indigenous community is uh, six months uh, at least. And there are also actually who have a food stock for years, like, you know, in Kasepuhan, they do actually have for 15 years. And this pandemic also actually give us guidance. We just need to listen to, to, to the very clear uh, message from these uh, situations now that we must stop the uh, way we so much extracting things from our mother earth. These are the message from this ongoing uh, crisis now. The current economic system that is so much controlled by the few elites, uh, the top of the pyramids in the economic system, is no longer feasible. The the beautiful uh, promises always that is that have been offered to indigenous peoples that that you give your land to this company, you will have beautiful life, you will have access to education, you you will have a role roads, you will have salary, you will have good uh, better life. It is not true. We need to we need to all agree that we need to establish what we call a better, sustainable, and just life. As as I mentioned earlier, our indigenous knowledge, practice, and uh, innovations, it is enough to feed ourselves. But we, but 
in the future, we need to make sure that others will also uh, have enough food. But for that, we need to get support in terms of technology, a fair access to markets, promotions, pricing, the whole thing about the food productions and distributions to the nearby market. We've been talking about paradigm shift so far, and we didn't do that. And now the pandemic is telling us, stop doing that. The future economic system should be like a mosaic that composed of small economic system at very local level, where we, we that is based on solidarity, based on re- reciprocity, and how do we take care of each other. That's, that's a very interesting uh, point of view. And that's actually my last question for both of you, because it's really interesting that you point out that this pandemic is a kind of the nature's way to remind us that we have strayed away too far. Um, I will give the last chance to Tania, and then we can wrap up. Thank you. Uh, so there's like the story of this community, but I think it also reflects a, the story of several communities in Mexico. In Mexico, we have a, some municipalities that we have called them municipalities of hope, which means none of them have gotten any case of um, COVID up to now, which is amazing, I think. Mm-hmm. And as Ruka had pointed out before, um, one of the strategies they have used is the collective lockdown. It's because we cannot conceive the life as individuals. The base of our living in the communities is a, the communalidad, we say in Spanish. We act as a single unit, as a community. So this community I want to describe, it's, it's interesting because this is not the first time they faced a crisis, but with all the policies that we had in Mexico, people started to migrate in this community and they were buying part of the crop, crop production, the maize production for many years. But in 2010, there were some natural disasters that challenged the way of living because they had money that they could get from all the migration or all the work they had outside the community. But then they realized that no matter if you have money, if you don't have anything to eat or you cannot supply your food needs to the year, then you are in danger. So they went back and tried to cultivate as much as they could so they could provide food for the the whole community for the whole year. So they still continue migrating, but they have a really nice dynamic in which they go outside the community for six months and they spend six months in the, in, in the town. Now with all the COVID, what we are also seeing is like these people said, if we are living in urban areas, we have to go back to our community because I know that if I'm in my community, at least I'm going to be able to feed myself. Even if I haven't cropped enough, my neighbors are not going to let me down because they are going to help me. And I was talking to one of these uh, women last week and I was asking her how she was doing and she told me I'm totally okay because I have food from the season like fruits and now I just gonna start to harvest some of the fresh corn that I can eat but also I have my neighbors that come and take care of me so you shouldn't worry we cannot interact with the world outside now but we have sufficient to be resilient in the community now also I was asking her, how are you dealing with not having access to many of the things or the foods that were coming from the outside? And she was like, 
no, this is not a problem because a lot of the things that people bring from the outside are, are actually not healthy, not basic. So I think now we are looking at the local, at the value of the local, at the value of being sovereign, autonomous, self-sufficient, which again, for many years, we, we thought it was like a sign of being un underdeveloped, if you want to call it in a way. But now we are seeing that these people have more chances if they are healthy, but also if they can still continue with this collective lockdown, protect themselves. And I think they might have more chances to survive than many of the people that is living in, in, the, in the urban areas because they are by themselves. There's no co collectivity to take care of each other. Okay. Wonderful that we see these examples of communities that are flourishing in this time of crisis. And then we can see the parallel um, from the communities in Indonesia and in Mexico, thousands of miles away from each other. This reminds me of one of the podcast episodes that I did with C4 and Ecraft scientists that said that this pandemic uh, has shown how vulnerable our food system is. Thank you, ladies, for this lovely discussion. I hope um, everyone who listens to it also enjoy it. Thank you for listening and don't forget to subscribe on the link provided. 